Hello and welcome to the Hacked Off Podcast. In today's episode, I have Jonathan with me. Jonathan, what do you do? Hello, everybody. Uh, good to see you, Holly. So uh, I'm a young entrepreneur, uh, 29, graduated in nuclear engineering, co-founder at Capslock alongside uh, Dr. Andrea Cullen and Lorna Armitage. We reskill adults into cybersecurity professionals, uh, and we do that via an intensive bootcamp course. So no upfront costs for our course. Instead, we're sort of trying to uh, revolutionize adult student finance, if you like, and we use income share agreements. So uh, instead of charging upfront tuition for education, we monetize by taking a share of our graduates' future income. So really interesting model, both in terms of education disruption and innovation, but also finance as well. Um, so I worked in cybersecurity as an IT and cybersecurity headhunter recruitment consultant for about six, seven years. Um, don't hate me, I'm reformed. Um, but I've got some good insights in terms of the labour market, uh, where it's going right now, etc. So, um, yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. Oh, man, immediately so many things that I want to talk about. <laughs> I think the first thing to point out that some people might be surprised at if they're listening to this and they're in the cyberspace, but maybe not in the uh, startup entrepreneurial space. You refer to yourself as a young entrepreneur. Now, I happen to know that most people I talk to about being an entrepreneur think you know, these massive corporations, you start them when you're 18 and, and you come through, come out of, you know, drop out of university and, and start a company in that. And that's the normal way to do it. But it, it seems to be based on what, what I've read that actually the average age for an entrepreneur is between 35 and 45. So that would make you a, a young entrepreneur. I'd say so. And the colonel started KFC when he was 61. And he's one of the most famous entrepreneurs. One of the most famous colonels as well. There's t- two things to remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, but yeah, so um, what did you want to talk about today then, Holly? Okay, so the first thing was, wow, young entrepreneur, that's cool. The second thing was, wait a minute, you said the word nuclear 10 seconds into a podcast. What's that all about? Yeah, it's overrated, to be fair. So, what, Nuclear in general? Or? No, no, like, that's right. So I, I can call myself a nuclear engineer, um, but I, I could never go to a nuclear power plant and do anything of value, apart from be a hazard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's weird in terms of if you think about education when you're 17 18 it's kind of like okay now you've got to decide what you want to do for the rest of your life go and do a degree to sort of shape that and at the time I was like oh, nuclear engineering is pretty cool so I did that and then sort of two years in ah, just wasn't for me when I graduated I ended up going into my first gig as a, a recruitment consultant mm-hmm. and that was right up my street a really interesting career I just think in terms of degrees now I think for adults, it's important that they have a mechanism to be able to reskill. So the average adult, adult changes career, whatever, eight years, 10 years. And right now in the UK, uh, there's not really many mechanisms to be able to do that, do it sustainably, affordably, uh, effectively. Um, and I suppose that's what we're try, uh, trying to ca- uh, tackle with, with Capslock. I think a lot of people, when they think of you know reskilling or, or career changes, worry about you know it, it being a step down. Maybe they're um, in a career that, they don't enjoy, but it's going okay, as in, you know, they're paying their bills and that kind of thing. Um, or maybe they entered a career because it was it was what they thought their passion was. You know, they're really into nuclear, and it turns out for them at that time, there's no jobs in nuclear, and they, they need to take a different direction. Um, how do you how do you encourage people to, to make that jump to have a career change, uh, given the fact that it's presumably quite a, a scary thing to do? Yeah, really scary, isn't it? Uh, 
I suppose on our, so I can speak from experience in terms of our first two cohorts and who's enrolled and, and their sort of reasoning behind it. So we have everything from, from some like um, current programmers, maybe clearing 50, 60K a year who want to come in and look at, you know, DevSecOps, for example, all the way through to you know, like an Amazon driver who might be on less income, for example, but has a real deep willingness to learn. I, I suppose advice for those who might be in a, in a role like a programmer, but just fed up of it, who might have to take a step back. I suppose if you're retraining in a sector like cyber, the step back might be sort of one, two years, but the ceiling's much higher and the quality of life and the enjoyment's much, much broader. So I think, you know, as a, a career tip, if there's something you're deeply interested in, to be able to do that as a profession is is real is is a real positive. Um, I suppose quality of life and your health, your mental health is probably the most important thing. And if you're not enjoying your current work, no matter how much it pays, you know, there's a problem there. And having the, the ability to do something about it is, is important. I think in cyber, especially, whatever your background is, there's so many transferable skills you can bring into the workplace. Mm-hmm. And diversity is king when you're you know, developing a high-performance cyber team. So if you've got someone who is, I don't know, a bus driver or works for the NHS as a, an appointment clerk, they can come in with a real different perspective and maybe your average cybersecurity graduate who has come into cyber as a tier one SOC analyst, for example. And I think nowadays, you know, in, in large corporations, you look at sort of, I don't know, let's pick Lloyd's, for example, where probably the, the biggest skills get they have is third-party assurance, mm-hmm. governance, risk and compliance, being able to bring soft skills in, into the sector um, is a real benefit. So yeah, you might you might take a step back, but I don't think it'll be for long. And it's mega interesting work when we when we speak about cyber. So uh, in the context of of the work that you do, what is cyber? I don't mean that in the pedantic sense that most people do, where they're like, oh, cyber is a meaningless word. I mean, what kinds of roles are your candidates building up towards? Yeah, good question. So for I really could deal with Dr. Andrea Cullen or Lorna Armitage right next to me right now because they so they um, they co-authored and designed the um, undergraduate and postgraduate cyber degrees for University of Bradford back in 2004. Loads from them. And and I think for for me, cyber is very holistic. Having a deep understanding of business and and the, the effects cyber has in terms of that business is really important. But having a holistic, broad view of all different problem areas in cyber so you think sort of understanding business culture process people um, policy and then security by design looking at maybe more i say technical skills access control offensive defensive security i think it's important to to understand how they all interlink together even if you're a SOC analyst and you're feeling quite siloed you know if you get onto business continuity or or incident response you know it's important to understand from a, a wider business aspect so to me cyber is is mostly business me like you don't have a cybersecurity division unless you have a you know assets to protect and a successful business i say successful as in you know there's employees and stuff so business first cyber second that makes sense do you agree uh, i do agree but i did love the summary of employees and stuff i'm gonna forevermore <laughs> summarize my companies as employees and stuff i get the point though and i think um this is a thing that a lot of people have been in cybersecurity for a long time don't think about we think of security as if it is the number one priority and it's not being a functional business is the number one priority yeah i didn't start a company to be nothing more than a secure company right there's some other bigger <laughs> purpose to this and we we want to use security to um to enable the, the uh, company to operate securely and to enable the company to operate um in an agile manner uh but yeah you don't Nobody uh, 
build a company to to build a Fort Knox and that's it. They're like, man, look at our firewalls and look at our antivirus and that and they stop. Exactly. I was um, I was talking to a, a fintech company, a trading house, basically, mm-hmm. um, and their sort of chief investment officer and we're, we're having a conversation with their cybersecurity team maybe four years ago. And it was literally right. OK, we keep getting these notifications to turn the firewall on for your, your trading platform. And the, the chief investment officer was like, you turn that on and we just don't have a business. Mm-hmm. And the security team were really struggling to see that point. I think that, you know, that's a pretty generalized point and quite easy to understand. But, you know, that being able to understand what the chief investment officer or your CEO or your board is is thinking when you're trying to implement controls or uh, policy is a, is a key skill. And I think is in terms of when you talk about a skills gap, I think that's where it, it might lie. And I'm just going to rant a little bit more, actually. So what we saw with a lot of the applicants is they initially wanted to be penetration testers, ethical hackers. Understandably. Yeah, that's the sort of culture we've got at the moment. Whereas, you know, being able to do a vulnerability scan is probably a service which is easily outsourced and is becoming a lower value skill. Whereas do it, being able to do that and have the soft skills and business understanding alongside is probably where the UK needs skills, I think. Yeah, I think uh, that is definitely something that I see when talking to people looking to break into the industry. They want to talk about pen testing and they want to talk about uh, things like red teaming, adversarial emulation. They want to talk about things that sound cool. They want to talk about hacking. And I think one of the one of the difficult things to get across is like regardless of whether you're looking to get into pen testing or you're looking to get into cyber in, in general, it's like... Um, the way that I typically summarize it is when a customer buys a penetration test, what they're buying is the report, right? They're buying the deliverable because there's some goal that they're trying to achieve. It's either to become a secure organization in such they need the vulnerability write-ups. It's to meet a compliance requirement and then they need to not read that report and give it to their QSA or whatever. Um, but it, it isn't the case that like, if you are the best hacker in the world, that isn't necessarily value to the business. If you cannot explain to the business what that vulnerability means in context, what is the business impact of this? How does yeah. it impact the goals of the organization? Yeah, no, hugely agree. Hugely agree. And I actually think so, um, where we carry sort of week four into a 26 week course here at Capsock, and we've just been through um, awareness, culture, social engineering. Mm-hmm. And if you're interested in red teaming, I think looking at social engineering, and looking at culture, process and um, awareness is probably a really good place to start because everybody else is going to look towards Linux, you know, how to use Nmap, for example, and the technical skills, Yeah. whereas you need to differentiate yourself. Yeah, I, I do understand that. And I think um, you know, social engineering is actually one of those areas that people very often think of as uh, a cool area to go into as well in terms of like the, the security uh, testing side of things. But again, you know, it's it's useless if we can't demonstrate to organizations how to improve things, right? Exactly. Yeah. How do you measure cybersecurity? How do you measure, you know, nothing's happened. Is that a good thing? Well, yes, in our in our case. Yeah. How do you how do you measure your cybersecurity culture? It's a it's a tough thing to do, right? How does an organization know that they're doing well at that? Um, and if you if you don't train these young practitioners, these uh, practitioners who are new to the field, then they're maybe not even going to consider culture as an important aspect, right? If they've never thought about it, if all they're doing is what you're saying of just like, oh, this tool's cool, let's do that. That's a hacking thing. Let's play with that. <laughs> exactly, it gets you nowhere. But um, yeah, so I'm just. Am I allowed to plug or talk about Capslock? Yes. Um, okay. Woo. We're going to leave that question in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so on our course, we have uh, like a case study business, uh, Plum Limited, and it's you know it's a terrible business, ten thousand employees, loads of problems. And our learners, they they look at the case study and we set them problems in terms of, okay, 
um, you know, we give them some initial instruction and education, pre-work, et cetera. But when we're in the classroom, we're looking at, okay, Plumber Limited has X, Y, and Z in terms of problems. Mm -hmm. What do you need to do as a functional team of cybersecurity professionals to be able to solve that problem? Yeah. And we use team-based learning to be able to develop their, both, you know, the, the soft impact skills, we like to call them, but also understanding of, of the areas we're teaching as well in cyber. So really interesting approach. So you mentioned soft skills twice now. I twitched the first time. I hate <laughs> the term soft skills because it yeah. somehow implies that, you know, technical skills are, are harder than others. I, I use the term professional skills, but you use the term impact skills. Yeah. Uh, is that just trying to avoid the term soft or is there something specific to that term? Yeah, initially trying to avoid the term soft skills because we didn't fit. Yeah, like you said, it's not the right term. So for us, impact skills are the most important. I like that. Yeah. I like that way of putting it because, <laughs> you know, what we're talking about with, with soft skills is the very often, not always, but very often is that that ability to communicate the importance of something to a business. So I like impact skills because I think it implies that instead, the, the, the ability to to take yeah. the, the thing that you have discovered, the issue that you've discovered and kind of put it in the right terms for the organization. Yeah. And if you look, so if you go to, there's a report by the World Economic Forum in, in mm -hmm. terms of the top 10 skills needed by employers in the digital age and seven out of those 10 are soft or sorry impact skills um <laughs> so, God, kick my own habit but yeah um so number one is problem solving so um again if you if you look sort of compare what we're doing compared to university in terms of education methodology the entire curriculum is is based around solving problems as part of a team in a work simulated environment whereas that's not the case in university so graduates are coming out into a workplace and they're presented with a problem which is going to be completely new to them because they've you know they've never had any experience like it and they're unable to to do the right things or think on their feet or add value in a way where well this is a new problem how do we solve it and most of the problems we come come across in cyber you know you can probably google it oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah i do a lot of software development at the moment and an awful lot of uh, of that does involve uh, googling errors or googling how to in given programming language yeah 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 Reddit, GitHub, and Google. Um, you can solve any problem with S3. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, working in groups. Now, the reason I, I picked up on that point was because I think a lot of people who have taken a traditional route into uh, industry will remember back to their time at university and think the part that they enjoyed the least was the group projects. Yeah. So how do, how do you handle that? Yeah, group projects at university are interesting, aren't they? Um, so we've got a slightly different demographic. So we're dealing with adults, so people who want to be there, and they're on their they're they're here for you know on their own back and want to reskill and improve their life. Whereas university is a bit of a rite of passage, and you still have a demographic who kind of like, well, I don't want to really want to be in my lectures. I'm just here to have a good time on campus kind of thing. So your team dynamics are completely different to you know, Lorna and Andrea have been delivering the the undergraduate and postgraduate degrees at Bradford for 14 years. Um, and it's just a world apart in terms of when you're dealing with people who want to be there and they're adults. <clears throat> Team-based learning is probably the best way to learn. Um, so if you think about the learning pyramid, uh, if you hear something, you'll remember and retain that knowledge, maybe about 5% of it. So if you're a podcast podcast listener right now, if you were test on the content of this podcast, you probably quite struggle. There will be an exam at the end. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, when you start to combine hearing with seeing and, and um, yeah, so... For example, if you go to slides um, and you hear someone talk about our slides, it increases your attention to maybe 20, 25% of knowledge retention. 
Um, when you get into the process of where you practice doing and you start teaching others and discussing, that's when you get into the top 50% of knowledge retention. Working in a team in an educational context allows you to get into that top 50% of knowledge retention. So right, here's some information, go away and do some pre-reading. When you get to class, it's time to discuss that knowledge to apply it and practice doing, and then look at presenting back to class so that you're teaching others. All the meanwhile, you do this, you're developing those impact skills. So team working, problem solving, um, report writing, professional communication, presenting, public speaking, all as a sort of a, like a byproduct of using TBL, which is team-based learning. So there's a real sort of in-depth methodology behind TBL, years of study, and it's one of the most effective ways to learn. I think learners who are a bit younger coming out of university or currently in university, they're used to very passive education, passive training. Lectures, that's the stereotype of a lecture, right? You get talked at. Yeah, exactly. You get talked at. The educator at the front of the room is imparting their knowledge just by talking at you. Here's all my knowledge, you know, off you go, absorb it. And it's just ineffective. So the best way to do is you impart that knowledge before class by saying, right, here's a couple of assignments, maybe 30 minutes to an hour of pre-reading. When you're in class, you apply it, you discuss it and you present it back to us and teach others about it. And it's um, we've seen in the first sort of three, four weeks of this methodology in terms of the capability from the learners, mm -hmm. it's blown our minds. Literally, they're doing stuff in an hour and a half, which would take university students four to eight weeks to do as part of a semester. It's crazy. It's really impressive as well. And definitely an education methodology, which not only applicable for cyber, which is quite a deep, complex, winding curriculum. But, you know, you look at software engineering, data science, even stuff like digital marketing. So well excited. I think it's fair as well, because one of those things that like I will talk in a derogatory manner about university group projects. But then when you look at how we train our staff, so the, the kind of real world application of uh, of learning is we do something very similar to what you've described there. Right. If we want to teach someone how to do uh, cloud system penetration testing, you go away and you, you read the fundamentals so that you understand the terminology and you know what the acronyms stand for. And then we, we partner the room partner them up we, we refer to that as shadowing but we'll put you know an experienced consultant on the job alongside a, a junior consultant so that they can talk through the problem space um, and I think when we describe to people how we do that from a, a training point of view people are excited about that but if you say group project yeah. there's, you know, there's like a lot of weight behind that term right I think that's the value of mentorship as well so when you speak about it in the workplace like that being able for the mentor and mentee is a really mutually beneficial relationship we have mentoring at Capstock as well. Plug. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned uh, other skills. So one of the skills that I, I, I heard you mention there was public speaking. Yeah. So um, how, how does that benefit somebody? How does that benefit somebody who's getting into cyber? Surely if they're getting into cyber, all they should learn is is programming, the TCP IP stack, and uh, how to use Nmap, right? What, what's public speaking going to do for them? <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so public speaking, maybe sort of layer eight of the OSI <laughs> model. Um, we use public speaking like over time. So it's not just in terms of here's a presentation, which I'm giving to people I'm to a conference to do a public speak. Um, you know, me and you right now, Holly, are doing public speaking. We're talking to each other. And in a workplace, um, you will be public speaking, you know, almost all of the time next to your colleagues. It's just a crucial skill to be able to take information and knowledge and impart uh, an opinion even uh, in a succinct and clear way. Again, impact skill, which is right at the top of the World Econ Economic Forum's top 10 list. Um, so look, if you're just looking to be an ethical hacker and you are concentrating on your tech skills, but completely neglecting the softer side, sorry, the impact side, <laughs> um, 
you need to be taking proactive approaches to be able to do that. So think of sort of uh, if you go to the cybersecurity mentor, for example, you know, in that community where there's um, interaction, that's really important. So if you're studying right now, I'd say make sure you're studying or, or being part of a group and being next to like minded people you can study with. Yeah, that that ability to to explain what you're doing to somebody is is really important. I think even if people think of, you know, there must be some ethical hacking penetration testing roles out there where maybe on the research side or the expert development side where where all you do is, you know, you, you sit in a room on your own and you and you write code. But if you're working with a customer, at some point that customer's gonna ring you up and say, What does this mean? And then you've got to you've got to use the public speaking skills to to explain the the problem to them, right? Yeah, interesting. We had a learner who was in a final, well, an interview process with a um, basically a SOC managed service provider, mm-hmm. and their biggest problem was that they didn't have anybody who could answer the phone and and speak with clients. <laughs> it's such a stereotype, but yeah. yeah, it's crazy to hear. But literally, they were like, to have someone being able to speak on the phone, communicate with clients, talk about the problems in a way that non-technical people might be able to get their head around. You know, they were literally hiring for that skills gap. Yeah, yeah, I am. Um... It's funny, we, we could talk a little bit about kind of like the getting a job post caps lock or, or breaking into cybersecurity side of things. But I was talking to a um, group of students this week, and one of them had just secured a position, uh, you know, congratulations to them kind of thing. How did it go? How was the interview? And they said that they were told at the end of the interview, one of the reasons that they scored so well was they were the only candidate that made eye contact. Oh, my days. Uh, yeah. So there is there is some things like that, like the, the, the stereotype of how we communicate that is Im- important to people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think now we're on that topic. In terms of when you're being interviewed, 50% of the game is how much the interviewer likes you in terms of that rapport. Yeah. Being able to build rapport with someone and find common ground is half the game. Again, skill a fine art in itself. But yeah, you have to make eye contact to be able to achieve that. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things. I'm I'm actually a nightmare for it, and it it could lead us into um, talking a little bit about diversity as well, which we can get to in a second. But uh, it, as I'm doing it now, so people listening to this podcast, we are on camera, and I am not looking at Jonathan. I'm looking around the room as I as I as I talk, and that's a thing that I do. Um, but it seems in that person's experience that that was quite impactful to them to to have you know the ability to to make eye contact and things like that. Is that something that yeah. that caps lock covers in terms of you know do you just get through the learning and the technical skills or do you go as far as you know helping them with the job hunting process? Yeah, literally from day one, uh, career outcomes for us. You know, as a business model, if you think about it with the income sharing, yeah. we don't get paid until we're out in industry, so um, it's as important as the academic. Um, product as well is to be able to find mechanisms to get them out into industry effectively and you know we talk about cyber roles socking list you know uh, penetration tester uh, red blue grc etc um, but actually there's there's hundreds of thousands of cyber enabled roles out there as well which um, i think there's a real skills gap in terms of cyber enabled roles so if you're a cybersecurity employer if you look across your marketing your operations your hr actually having an, uh, an intrinsic understanding of how a cybersecurity business operates is a real benefit in different areas as well. So we're focused on cyber enabled roles. So what we do is um, we have a curriculum for career outcomes, which is sort of 10 weeks or 10 sessions plus one to one support as well from mentoring and myself as a careers counselor mm-hmm. and our outcomes team. Uh, and we work on sort of three different areas, which is initially visibility, profile visibility. It doesn't matter how good you are, you've got to be in the right place at the right time to get a job. Like you can be the best cybersecurity consultant, but if no one knows about you, you're never going to get hired. So again, training and teaching uh, learners how to be visible and in the right place at the right time. Then we look at outreach. So once you've got a good profile, you know what you want. 
we look at how can you communicate with decision makers who are the decision makers, HR, hiring managers, external recruiters. And then we look at sort of interview training as well. So how can you prepare for an interview? How can you perform well during an interview? And then how can you take the right actions to optimise your experience after the interview with the employer? So sort of a three-step process. You used uh, a term that I've never heard in this context before, but makes complete sense. Uh, I've heard it in the context of of crime. You used the term cyber-enabled. So I've heard cyber-enabled previously to differentiate between cyber-enabled and cyber-centric crime. So fraud has existed forever, right? It's not a cyber-centric crime. Yeah, it yeah. can be cyber-enabled, you know, if I use um, online communication methods to, to you know, uh, catch to, to bait in my uh, my victim then that's that's cyber enabled but i think it's it's great to hear you use it in this context of you know you're absolutely right it's like a whole lot of jobs out there you know cyber skills would be beneficial to you that you wouldn't necessarily think of we jumped on straight away in this discussion talking about pen testing right that's my bias here as a pen tester but you know there's there's so many other roles we, we've got what these these two roles that we've been discussing pen tester and sock analyst but there's like <laughs> know, right? there's so much other so many other things that having cyber skills can lead you into right yeah, exactly. I think if you're in any mature work environment now, you're probably working in an ISO 27K accredited environment. Having an intrinsic knowledge of ISO 27K as a skill is really important. So most white collar professionals and uh, jobs, you need to understand cybersecurity. And I think, you know, when people talk about the skills gap, mm-hmm. it's not just cyber roles. It is people understanding information security, policy procedure process around cybersecurity. And I think if you've got cyber skills, you're going to be in demand. Like if you go and interview, I don't know, let's saw IT analyst or software developer or data scientist and you understand cyber, it's going to be so impactful and so important and it would be a huge USP. So I think as a society in general, we need better cybersecurity training. I think if you look at, I don't know, let's plug Bob's business, for example, who do cybersecurity cultural awareness. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important to plug that skills gap, which is not just cyber roles, but every everybody working with technology. Yeah, and there's some there's some you know big ones that are like mentioning uh, software developer roles and things like that. You said right at the beginning, didn't you? Um, things like DevSecOps, being able to talk about uh, those skills, those uh, approaches, mm. uh, and maybe those kind of cultures, if, if you prefer that term for DevSecOps. But yeah, you know, if you go into an organization looking to get a role as a software developer and you can talk about secure software development life cycles, that's going to put you ahead, surely. That's a, a great, uh, you know, value add to your CV, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, what you, from your perspective, actually, Holly, what is SecDevOps? <laughs> DevSecOps. Uh, so I would refer to DevSecOps as a culture as opposed to uh, like a methodology or something like that. But um, there is, there's two ways to describe DevSecOps. There's the sarcastic way that people often say, where they say, you know, um, DevOps, that's just the new term for sysadmin, right? <laughs> and, it, and it is true to a degree in such that many organizations are, are making that move towards a, a, a more agile approach. But uh, it's unfair because it glosses over many of the benefits of uh, those kinds of approaches. What we're enabling team members to do with things like uh, DevOps and DevSecOps is have cross responsibilities between certain roles. So organizations don't have a group of software developers who do nothing but write code and a group of operations people who do nothing but administer servers. But there's a crossover between those two roles. And this allows for huge benefits, such as things like infrastructure as code. So if we're using um, cloud platforms, be them public or private, we can spin up servers very, very quickly. But using infrastructure as code, we can configure those systems to be secure to a certain standard. We can do things like compliance as code. And bridging that gap between those two roles allows more flexibility, more agility, but just a whole lot more like efficiency in the way that we do do things. So 
DevSecOps is a completely different approach to developing systems where you, you're crossing over those roles. You're not having siloed teams and you're bringing in uh, new mechanisms such as infrastructure as code, compliance as code, uh, and those kinds of things. How interesting. Very cool. Is that how you would have described it? You put me on the spot there. Definitely not. <laughs> no, sorry. I only ask because I don't know myself. Okay. okay. <laughs> it's what it does. It's banded around and people are like, is it SecDevOps or DevSecOps? SecDevOps, is it? DevSecOps. DevSecOps. There we go. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. It's the, it's the, the, the crossing over of, of those roles. The order doesn't matter necessarily. Definitely talk about cloud security quickly, though. Um, yeah. Um, just, you know, we've got one client, you know, we were undertaking a massive digital transformation program mm -hmm. towards the cloud. And um, just quickly, there's for AWS and Azure, there's some really good free e-learning, uh, e-training. Mm -hmm online available and the exams are pretty cheap as well so you can get aws or azure fundamentals certifications for i think about 50 quid definitely worth doing if you're looking to get into cyber having an understanding of the cloud vital mm -hmm. yeah those um those uh those certifications are uh, one of those things that when people think of you know exams and certifications they think of them as being like really hard and spending months and months uh learning about them but uh, on the cloud side of things so with AWS Certified Cloud Practitioner or Azure Fundamentals, that first level is like, do you understand the acronyms? Do you understand the terminology? Do you know the benefits of cloud? And, and getting upskilled to that level is can be quite quick. Yeah. I think a lot of people kind of put put these certifications on on a, a a pillar in terms of them being unachievable. But even as you mentioned, the exams are relatively cheap as well in comparison to to other areas yeah exactly warren buffett always says the best investment you can make is in yourself get some books and get some certifications mm. um, but i think uh, both tracks are about 12 hours of, of e-learning most people who are looking at it will know the fundamentals anyway so um, 12 hours you can do that what in two days one day if you really want to take the exam job done and it goes a long way actually if people see an aws or reserve on your cv it bodes well does add value I wouldn't recommend doing it in one day because that's exactly what I did. <laughs> I did it. Did you pass? Uh, I did pass, but I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't necessarily. It is completely feasible that you buy. So, so I did the um, AWS Cloud Practitioner, and it's completely feasible that you buy the book, you read the book, and you sit the exam because it is that kind of book exam where it's like you understand the terminology, you understand the acronyms, those kinds of things. But it's a big book still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I mean, I I didn't think about the book. Are you? Um... So you're talking about AWS um, CCP Security Practitioner. Yeah, CCP. so cloud cloud practitioner. Yeah. Then there is security speciality. Wow. Is there is another one? Yeah, I remember the little weird roadmap they had. Um, but yeah, definitely kick off with the fundamentals for both AWS and uh, Azure. I think they have about what ninety percent market share between them in the UK. I think AWS does. AWS's market share is significantly higher than than Microsoft's. Oh, sorry. You do have GCP. GCP's market share is 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 very low. Um, very. That's unfair to them. It's a, it's it's huge. I'm mean, I'm saying AWS at the moment is the bigger is is the the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah, most definitely. I'd start with AWS anyway. If you want vendor neutral cloud certs, look at CCSK or CCSP. CCSK is more foundational. Definitely a good place to start. And it's open book as well. There's the cloud plus as well. But only 23% of that is on security. But it's definitely worth looking at. And it's more expensive than AWS and Azure. Yeah. Fun fundamentals. Good that. Uh, cloud plus and security plus go go nicely together if you want to get, get into that. Yeah, security plus is hard. I, um, I was speaking to one CISO and he said he found security plus harder, harder than CISP. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. I think one of those things comes down to your preference of exam styles, though. There's 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 a degree of that. Dragging us dragging us back, though, since I've had my little rant about DevSecOps, <laughs> and no doubt I'm now getting 
uh, will no doubt have hundreds of emails sent in based on people disagreeing with my definition of DevSecOps. Don't worry, I won't read them. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I, uh, I marked out to talk about would be um, diversity. The reason that I marked this out was we were talking about making eye contact in job interviews and things like that, and Scary. I pointed out that I'm not very good at that. That's not a thing <laughs> that I do. And there's so- sometimes, you know, when, when we think about diversity, we get we maybe trip over something like gender diversity because that's the one that people talk about a lot. But but of course, diversity can include other things like uh, neurodiversity and things like that. Um, does Caps Lock consider those kinds of things in terms of the the training program to make sure that it that it works well for lots of people? Yeah, it's really ingrained. Um, you know, sixty six percent of the co founders are female. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think if we let's tackle gender diversity first, a great mm-hmm. subject. And um, I can speak about it from sort of a male point of view as, um, let's say, CEO of a startup. We were in very important business meetings, uh, pitching for investment. And I was with, you know, Lorna Andrea, speaking with male business leaders and male investors. And they always used to talk to me and talk to me only and, you know, refer to Jonathan this, Jonathan that. Here's an idea for you, Jonathan. Whereas, you know, Lorna Andrea, insanely competent. I'm so lucky to work alongside them. And for me as a male, it makes me feel really uncomfortable because I'm so aware of it now. These sort of learned behaviours, no one's fault, it's part of the society we're brought up in. But we should actively work towards tackling those learned behaviours. And for a male, it made me really uncomfortable. And it's a really interesting concept, really. I came away, Lorna Andrea were like, well, they've just talked to you for half an hour there. And I'm like, well, they've just talked to me. That makes me feel shit as well. So I think as um, a male in business or in cyber or where, you know, there's a clear gender gap it's important to be aware of those dynamics because it can actually be a competitive advantage in terms of your career both in terms of scaling up as a you know getting into management positions but also just being aware of it and you know developing good relationships with female co-workers i think this is one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is like sometimes these behaviors uh, occur and if your if your attention's never drawn to them mm. you don't realize that those things happen somebody gave yeah. me a, an example recently in their workplace something that had been frustrating them where in meetings uh so they work they work in a office that is predominantly male yeah. and in meetings uh she is always the one who's asked to take minutes oh minging. And, and that kind of thing is is something that stands out to her and yeah. frustrates her but nobody else had noticed and when it was brought up people were like oh my god like that's like that's so unfair but they just they had never realized before because you use the term learned behaviors right sometimes it well yeah it just yeah. is it's not in it's not intentional it's just learned behaviors and i think having a culture in terms of a company where it's okay to call out the learned behaviors and it's okay to have them mm-hmm. and to as long as you have the you know um the appetite to be able to look at them and, and try and tackle them and understand from other people's point of view that it's um is something that should be discussed and should be openly uh, tackled. I think that culture is really important, but it's okay to be called out. We all have learned behaviours, myself included, working with Lord and Andrea, you know, alongside two fem- female co-founders. Much more aware of it now than I was, you know, 12, 18 months ago. And I'm really happy in terms of I've tackled, I've tackled those learned behaviours. I haven't conquered them, um, but it has definitely made me a better leader, better you know, business person. So looking at uh, the topic of reskilling into cyber then if somebody is is hearing the things that we're, we're talking about here and some of these things are standing out to them as you know maybe they've got a, a passing interest in cybersecurity, but now they're saying oh actually this sounds like you know reskilling is an option to me yeah um what would what would you recommend to those people to to go and find out more maybe they're working in um software development or network engineering or something that's closely related or maybe as you mentioned right at the beginning that they're doing something completely different and and they're looking for a a role change how, how would someone get started 
Yeah, it's, it's a great question, isn't it? There's all the knowledge is out there. It's just sporadically placed and hard to organise. So if you're interested, there's definitely resources you can turn to to start getting um, a feel of what it's like to work in cyber, what are your job prospects like, etc. Um, again, shameless plug, but if you apply to Capsule, you, you get access to pre-course work. So no commitments. What we do, we bring you in e-learning and then sort of access to immersive labs as well and sort of a, a guided e-learning track around sort of the fundamentals of cyber to get you started. And it's sort of 20 to 30 hours of pre-course study, which you need to do before you get onto the capsule course. Uh, it's a really good place to start. We've also got a cyber careers guide as well. So if you just go to capsule.ac, there's a cyber careers guide on there, which talks a bit about the roles, uh, some of the, the, the skills you need and what employers are looking for as well. Definitely get on LinkedIn and start following the right people. So connect with Holly, for example, connect, um, shameless plug for myself. You know, connect with me and other leaders within the in the sector as well. And you start to see on the LinkedIn community some of the aspects of what a, a cyber career is like as well. Yeah, I think one of the big things there is is taking a look at, as you said, the the roles that are out there. Because I think um, there's there's a couple of problems with uh, maybe role definitions. And certainly when we see within job descriptions and things like that, where there doesn't, in my experience, in my opinion, seem to be a, a, a great agreement across the industry as to specifically what is an analyst versus an engineer versus a consultant and those kinds of things. Yeah. But taking a look at, you know, uh, the job availability uh, and, and the different breakdowns of roles is important. But another thing. Uh, is, of course, the kinds of organizations that, that you would like to work for. One of the big things that, that I point out within the pen testing space, and I'm sure it applies more broadly to cyber, is working for a very large company or a small boutique company or a startup is a very different experience. And, <laughs> Isn't it? You know, you wouldn't necessarily enjoy them all. Yeah. It's completely fine that, you know, for you to not want to work for a huge consultancy or equally not want to work for a startup. And, and you know, you've got to you've got to find not only the role that works well for you, but the kind of organization that works well for you, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, from from our experience and perspective so far in cyber, uh, most of the roles are with larger organizations, as you would expect. But there are startups which are, for example, cybersecurity consultancies or vendor providers where it is a startup environment. And yeah, two completely different cultures. You've also got public sector in there as well. So government, NHS and so oh, yeah. on, which is just yeah, yeah. our environment completely. If you want an easy life and a nice pension, head in that direction. Um, but it can be frustrating as well if you're um, if you're a change maker, let's say. Yeah, the FTSE 250 are the biggest cyber hirers. You know, they 60% of the cyber roles are with 250 companies from our experience. So since since we've mentioned it, let, let's talk about um, some of the differences uh, through your experience. So... Uh, you know, what are, the, what are the pros and cons of working with a big company? What are the pros and cons of working with a starter? Yeah, big company, you go, you know, job security, training, uh, they tend to have really well-rounded uh, remuneration packages as well. They look great on your CV. Um, you know, if you can work for one of, in financial Barclays, HSBC, you know, Deloitte, some of the big four, they're, they're the type of employers who hire a lot of cybersecurity professionals and hold a lot of value on a CV. On the flip side, if you look at startups, um, less secure, but way more exciting. So if you're an early employee, you might get share options, for example, and become a millionaire just by being one of the, <laughs> the first employees through the door. But it's a much more innovative and um, fast-paced environment. So really skills which are stretched to sort of that problem solving, being able to take the initiative, work independently, work on your own. They're the skills which are really important for a startup, which might be less important in a large corporization where your job responsibilities are more steady let's say don't know if you agree i find the thing 
about working for startups is you only feel two emotions, euphoria <laughs> and terror, yeah. and lack of sleep tends to amplify them both. Um, maybe if you're an employee, it's less so, but definitely if you're sort of the first, well, like in the first 10, it's a very intense environment, but hugely rewarding. But you really feel the ups and downs. I suppose if you're going to work and you're really passionate about it, that's what you want, isn't it? Yeah. You're going to ride the company's success and failure. Well, it depends on, on what you're looking for. You know, if you're uh, very sure that there's a specific kind of role that works for you and you want to get deep dive into that, then working for big companies are going to allow you to specialize very strongly. Whereas yeah. one of the benefits of working for smaller companies and startups very often is uh, because the team is smaller, uh, you can you can pick up more responsibilities. You can start having yeah. um, strange cross roles where you have things like, you know, half my time I'm a pen tester and half my time I'm a software developer and, and things yeah. like that. There's yeah. less less strict job titles for the, the very yeah, small yeah, or, companies. Or like a SOC analyst and HR administrator. That's yeah. something strange. Yeah, and, and um, some people will hate that and some people will absolutely love it because you get to spread your skills and, and learn more things and pick up responsibilities and those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in a, in a smaller organization, your relationships with your hiring managers are amplified as well. It's really important to have a good functional relationship with those who are your senior in a smaller organization. I think it's less important the larger the company becomes. So it sounds like we've given everybody a path here with something to get started if they're looking at getting into cyber, some things to think around in terms of the different roles that are available, the different kinds of companies that are available. But if somebody is you know, picking up these skills, maybe they've passed some of the certifications that were mentioned and those kinds of things, and now they're at the point of looking to get a job, how do you optimize for that? How do you make sure that you're successful getting through job interviews? Yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting area because every hiring manager and decision maker is different. So let's go back to those larger organizations. It might be a case of you go through an external recruiter, an internal recruiter, then you get to the CISO who's on a panel of three. Whereas with a smaller organization, it might be a chat with Holly and you're in the door sort of thing. So what I would say for someone who's got the skills and is looking for a role is uh, you've got to be visible and in the right place at the right time. So it's a really proactive activity you've got to undertake, which is career searching. Um, I'm going to plug LinkedIn. LinkedIn's massively important in cyber. Literally 90% of cyber professionals are on LinkedIn. Even for hiring managers who really dislike LinkedIn and don't use it, if you send them a, a LinkedIn message or a DM, they will answer it and they will reply. Um, you know, it's just the right of passage for a cybersecurity professional to check LinkedIn daily sort of thing. Uh, so get on there, optimize your profile. The three most important things for LinkedIn is your profile photo. So make sure you're smiling, your headline. So what your headline is, make sure it's Adds a bit of personality, but it's professional. Um, what's the uh, and then your your name as well. So you, so that's the three things people see on LinkedIn um, when they don't click on your profile, and that's sort of the the selling point for you to try and hook them to get you to get your profile views up. So name, headline, profile picture. Make sure they're optimized and have a good read in terms of what's uh, what's needed. As well, I'd recommend be um, go beyond and above in terms of showing your willingness to learn. So again, top skill, what employers want is willingness to learn. Cyber landscape always changing. So you need to be able to demonstrate that. So use LinkedIn as a daily journal, for example. Here's what I learned today. Here's what I'm doing today. Here's a challenge I've got. Ask the community some questions. Start a blog, do a vlog, do a podcast, something you can do to differentiate yourself. So the harder it is, the less less likely people, other people are going to do it. And that's what will set you apart. And then when you're prospecting for work, Yes, apply for roles and put in well-optimized applications, but also think about contacting hiring managers directly. So in your local area, if you've got sort of a 30-minute commute, you know, that's your maximum commute, have a look at all the hiring managers within your vicinity, connect with them on LinkedIn, and try and commun communicate with them directly instead of going through the application funnel. 
because they're they're ultimately the people who will make the decision on like your career and possibly the rest of your life. Yeah, I think um, there's a point there as well around um, you use the term like optimizing your profile. Uh, I see this uh, a lot on on LinkedIn profiles, but also definitely on on CVs where sometimes there's there's words on there but there's nothing to to back it up yeah. what, what i mean by that give you an example it might it might say something like okay experienced in pen testing and it's like <laughs> okay does that mean you know you've have you have you read a book have you watched one youtube video or have you been doing this for 10 years yeah you know it's like um and also uh, although we speak about pen testing as if it's a, a narrow slice of cybersecurity, it itself is broken down into web applications infrastructure thick apps you know all of that kind of thing exactly yeah so you know drawing out those experiences and I, I think you made a great point there about you know, that that passion you said passion for learning but also from from my point of view as a hiring manager uh, what is the work that you want to be doing yeah because one of the 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 worries of course is um hiring somebody into a role that isn't a good fit for them because they'll just leave right staff retention is very very important to us so we want to see not only what are you experiencing but what is the kind of work that you want to be doing so we can make sure that the role matches well, exactly. If you think the classical case of ethical hacker, once you land your first job, you spend 80% of your time report writing. Um, so it's important to know what you want to do and have a, a good, insightful knowledge of what a job role actually entails on a day-to-day basis. And there's loads of resources out there for you to be able to, to learn from that. And then just to touch on CVs as well, um, mm-hmm. really recommend enhancecv.com um, to create a nice CV, but make sure it's two pages or less. You know, As a hiring manager yourself, Holly, there's nothing worse than like a four, five page CV, which is sort of a traditional Word document. It's difficult. I give some help um, on that. And of course, this is just my opinion as a hiring manager. Reasonable adults will disagree. But for, for many people who have reskilled, they have prior work experience that they want to include because it's a part of their history, but maybe it, it becomes less relevant. Uh, I think the record that I've had this year for longest CV was 17 pages. I would agree with you. I can swear on this podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was going to. <laughs> no, it's fine. You're not the first person to, to swear on the podcast. Um, your 17 pages is the, the longest CV that I've received. And, and I agree with you. You know, Two pages is, is pretty optimized. So people worry and they say like, well, I've got all of this history. I've done all of these things. And maybe I've had many small jobs. How do I include those on the CV without it becoming 17 pages long? And, and the advice that I give there is um, the longer ago it was, the less that I want to hear about it. I care very little which primary school you went to. I care yeah. very much about what you've been doing over the last year. Yeah, no, 100% agree. And actually, if you really have if you've got 17 pages worth of experience, have a two-page CV, which summarizes that, and then possibly have a longer CV, yeah. ideally less than 17 pages, to go alongside it, if someone really wants to de- de- deep dive into your experience, which they won't. No, I mean, things like, um, you know, if you're listing on... Um... Some things are just, I guess it leads into the idea of like, you can have a CV that's optimized for each role, right? Yeah. You know, for if you have your forklift truck driver license, I hire pen testers, that's not going to help me. Um, if you have, you know, a certification for Windows 2000, it's not really going to help me. <laughs> so, so those are the kinds of things that you can either remove or either just, you know, cut down on the space that it takes up on the page. You don't need half a page on your GCSE choices. You could get that into one line and spend more time talking about what you've done uh, more recently. Uh, and also one of the things that I like to see in a CV that I rarely see is those extracurriculars, right? Yeah, yeah. If people are doing things like immersive labs, if they're doing things like Hack the Box, if they're looking to do lightning talks at community events, yeah. like you can put that on the CV. That's a great thing to see. Yeah, but yeah. people very often think of it. It's not professional experience. It can't go on that page. Exactly. Almost all hiring managers want a self-starter and demonstrating that is so important. Absolutely. I agree. 
Right, that's everything that I've written on my very messy page of notes as we've been talking here. Oh my days. Is there <laughs> is there anything that you wanted to, to mention that uh, we haven't covered or anything that you, you wanted to add some more detail to before we close off? Yeah, I think let's, uh, you know, given your target audience is people working in cyber and hiring managers, mm-hmm. etc. let's just talk about in terms of taking responsibility as an employer mm-hmm. to get more people into cyber and taking responsibility for increased diversity in cyber as well. Yeah. So when you look at roles, two to five years experience, you know, tier two soccer analysts and so on, and there is a skills gap there and people struggle to hire for it. I was speaking to a recruitment agency this morning saying they're so busy with experienced hires. You know, the reason we're in this predicament is because not enough employers are taking responsibility for training and bringing people in and giving them a chance. That first six months of experience is the hardest one to get. And once you've got it, you're sorted for life. And it's about employers taking responsibility to hire grads, get interns in, and be part of the community where we can get to the position where those experienced hires of two to five years are not a problem anymore. And we get to that equilibrium where new talent and current talent is equal to the to the demand out there in industry. Yeah, it's great to hear. And it's definitely something that I think uh, a lot of companies struggle with. They want the experience, uh, they want the talent, but but they don't necessarily have that platform in place to, to upskill. And uh, maybe that's the problem that they should be solving within their organizations. Yeah, and don't be don't be scared to positively discriminate as well. If your if your current work workforce has a certain sort of gap in terms of diversity, it's okay to positively discriminate in the right way. I think that's okay. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for for joining us today Woo-hoo. and um, for for being on the podcast. I think there's a a lot to cover there. Um, how can how can people reach you if they want to find out more about uh, what you're doing or about, of course, Capslock? Yeah, Capslock.ac or just uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Be, be happy to have a chat. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. Super.